Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 10th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, the closely kept, not closely kept secret, it's official. The congresswoman representing this 47th congressional district, Katie Porter, has announced she is running for the California U.S. Senate seat that will be on the 2024 ballot. All right. Now on to the show. No, we're not done with the COVID pandemic because COVID is not done with us. It'll be instructive to examine a comprehensive list of parts in the politics of the pandemic like before the next pandemic or, or crisis ensues. Today, Sarah Wallace Goodman, UCI political science professor, will talk about her new book entitled Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of covid how the politicization of the pandemic endangers our lives and our democracy. It's co-written with Shauna Kushner, Gadarian, and Thomas Pepinski, published by Princeton University Press. Sarah Goodman's team was the first to collect and analyze national survey data asking Americans, that's all of us, about our health, behaviors, and attitudes. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour, thank goodness, is Sarah Wallace Goodman, professor of political science at UC Irvine, bringing her latest work, Pandemic Politics, the Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID, How the Politicization of the Pandemic Endangers Our Lives and Our Democracy. She co-wrote this with Shauna Kushner-Gadarian and Thomas Pipinski. Part rearview mirror, part windshield ahead on the freeway. This team's work was the first to collect and analyze national survey data asking Americans about their health behaviors and attitudes. Sarah's own research interests include citizenship, political identity, immigrant integration, comparative politics, and qualitative methods. Those methods are very important to do our work properly here. Her other publications include her book, Citizenship in Hard Times, and her soon-to-be-released article, Citizenship Studies, Policy Causes and Consequences. Sarah completed a Bachelor's of Science in Political Science at Miami University in Ohio, both her Master's and Ph.D. in Government at Georgetown University, and she was a postdoctoral fellow at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Sarah Wallace Goodman. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. Okay. And what I didn't mention, and she just, she was slipping into this chair here in Studio A, that she had been, what were the call letters for that station you were affiliated with in the past? W-O-X-Y. Was that Ohio? Yeah, South Oxford, Ohio. Oxford. You may know the call numbers from Rain Man. It was the radio station from the Rain Man movie. Well, Rain Man would have Band remembered that detail. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I wouldn't remember, but I remember, I remember yeah. pieces of that, the right. dynamic. Yeah. Meaning. I did grunt work for the radio no, station oh, in college. Uh, I thought I edited, I produced you to say that it is not grunt work. Oh. It's, it's Hollywood Grounds That's right. radio station. So, I, I mean, really, this this is my yeah. favorite place to be. So, except for there's two kids I got to hear. that. So... I want to start with, and maybe if it's obvious, I still need to find out because I, I don't know. I did I checked around a little bit of the pedigree of your co-writers to see, like, is there some kind of like a political kind of a, you know, thing going on with this? So talk about the three-way of you three authors writing this book. Each one of you, you're melding the political, the psychological, and the institutional. Talk about how you joined and how you put that together. And then tell us about your target audience, because I think you're talking to a lot of different people when I read this. Yes. So first I'll talk about kind of the origin story, how we got together to work on the book. 
it wasn't initially a book. Initially, it was just um, a survey. And Tom Popinski and I were co-authors on some previous work. And so we were sort of having an ongoing conversation about other work as this sort of situation was evolving. He studies Southeast Asia. So he was sort of reading international news. And it was, you know, the situation was dramatically covered dramatically differently than it was being in the United States, right? From the very beginning. From the very beginning. And I study Europe and I'm reading about, you know, Italy in early February, and still kind of nothing is happening in the United States. And so we're sort of having this as a background conversation to, um, alongside our other work. Uh, In the meantime, Shana is, so I would be remiss if I didn't correct your pronunciation, Shana Kushner-Gadarian. I said Shana. Shana? Oh, thank you. Uh, So uh, meanwhile, so Shana's an Americanist, and she studies political psychology, and uh, Shana and I are friends, just usually chatting about Broadway on Twitter and that's, you know, sort of, but we were talking kind of about sort of this thing that was happening. They were calling it coronavirus. And so as Tom and I were talking, as Shannon and I were talking, we're like, let's sort of just combine and see kind of if Americans know what's happening, if they're, if they're adapting their behavior at all, if they're sort of worried what their emotions are sort of some general questions um, that we wanted to know that we didn't feel we had any answer to and so when you're doing sort of survey work in general and you work for a university you're a, a researcher at a university there's sort of different protocol that you have to go through so it's unlike if you're just pew or you're um, a regular private survey firm company if you do it through the university you have to have the institutional review board make sure that you're not you're not deceiving human subjects that you're not putting human subjects in vulnerable positions that you're not putting them at risk so we started this sort of big process of like writing up a survey finding a firm to field it getting irb approval at all of our institutions getting funding so we also applied to the national science foundation for a what's called a rapid grant and so we did all these things and so our first survey was in the field March, right? March 15, which is about the same time, if my memory recalls, that sort of kids started coming home from school. So we were already in the field asking Americans sort of about their behaviors, about their knowledge level, about their emotions, etc. So that was kind of the origin of how the three of us kind of got on this project together. And, you know, it's funny, we were talking before the show, like it wouldn't have been possible without Twitter, which is was just such a node, uh, kind of a, sort of a public square for academics. Um, the biggest to, water to cooler about. we're ever going to find. Yeah, right. And sort of, you know, the, now sort of that people have migrated to other platforms. I think that that opportunity for this kind of work might really um, be uh, absent in the future, which um, I guess is another topic. But it, but it, you know, it, it's a salient one when I think about how this story came together. And then in terms of our audience, so initially we were kind of, our audience was ourselves. We were at home and we were like, I don't know. Am I going crazy? Like, what do I, what are other people doing? Why don't we have any information? So in the sense, it was a little self-satisfying. Like, we wanted to know what people were doing and thinking. Uh, and then quickly, we also decided that, you know, so some of the, I guess, academic incentives are like, you want to publish high-impact work and high-impact outlets. But for us, it was really important that we disseminated everything publicly and just made it available online. Uh, so as we were collecting and analyzing results. It was all on Twitter. We were all sharing it publicly, you know, writing op-eds, writing, putting it on blog posts and things like that, just so that everyone could get access to this information. And that then really informed the tone of what eventually became the book because it was very public-oriented and very much about uh, sharing information that we collect and analyzed. So I'm going to ask to have you break down that there's a lot of assumptions that went into what you're describing is going on in the, uh, we call it the body politic, political identities. And I would like for you to define what you meant by partisan. Mm -hmm. So partisan is, it's what party you support. Uh, But of course, it's not just the box that you check on the ballot or the button you press in the polling booth. It's, it's a suite of identities now. So there's this enormous literature. It's sort of group of studies in political science about how partisanship is, um, it's not just the party you vote for. It's not just the issues you support. It's just not the policies that you're interested in. But it's this whole collection of ideas and beliefs, behaviors, as we show in the book. And so it's 
what's called a social identity. So like many other things may structure your decisions or your thinking or your behaviors, what car you buy, um, maybe where, you know, what shops you go to. Those behaviors can be shaped by, you know, your age, your gender, lots of different identities which might be important to you. So too is partisanship. So that's how we view partisanship in the book as a social identity. That's sort of the theoretical framework that we use, uh, which is in line with a lot of work in American politics. So I'm asking this because as I read the representation of the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans, and I felt like they were put on sort of the same kind of, uh, they, uh, there was a symmetry. And I felt like I've been experiencing, because uh, we'll, we'll talk about the pre-existing conditions. That's such a rich way of framework to use to describe what we had going into this to, for us to understand this. But the, the going into this, I, I think there's been a tremendous asymmetry in the parties. And I feel like there is, or I'm, I'm concerned that there is one that's about governing and the one that's about undermining and that it's sort of it's bearing out we we're seeing it this week in the US Congress we're, we're and we're going to I'm sure see it for the next a couple of years so i just i felt like there was a, a giving uh, the, them sort of put the, putting them on an even level uh, even sort of playing field but i think i think there's one that's doing something and the other is about uh, one is governing and the other is about brand. I don't think the Democrats ever are going to have a brand. And so that asymmetry, that's like the opening act of the play about the asymmetry between the two main parties. So I think that's correct, but I don't think it's inevitable. So and that's where the politics are that may that, you know, we do observe this asymmetry that Ironically, the party of government was not interested in governing. Right? That's a very big irony in the sort of observation that you present. But it's not just that you know one was governing and one was, or one wanted to govern, one didn't govern, or one was about like doing something and the other one was about branding. Um, I think kind of one of the meta points we make in the book, but that's certainly really prevalent in kind of American politics literature, is that that's not inevitable. That's a product of choices made by party elites, made by, you know, um, influential insiders within political parties, which then kind of reverberates to sort of the, the class of leadership that then sends uh, cues to uh, party supporters. Cues? So, yeah. Sledgehammers. Yeah. <laughs> well, so like, you know, this and those can those can change, right? right? I mean, depending on what the issue is, right? I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot in the book is that the partisan responses were not inevitable the way that they were. And we sort of imagine the scenario, you know, in which Trump could have taken credit for the vaccine, for Operation Warp Speed, really, you know, credit claimed that and like boosted uptake among his followers. Like, so there's a lot of different ways you could have imagined these sort of tide shifting. But like, I think, you know, what we do see and how we think about partisanship is that it is a strong identity for both. Whatever the content is of that identity is a function of party leadership and other kind of influential factors on each side. But like that, that both sides do have partisanship as a strong identity that features their behavior is sort of really meaningful. But I, I think there's a third party, a third uh, element. It's not a Venn diagram. I'm just trying to figure out what would be a better way to, to frame this. But I think there's the there's the in terms of the pandemic. And and politics in general, over the previous administration, there was the Democratic Party, there's the Republican Party, and there's Trump Inc. And I would have been fascinated, unless you really needed to be zeroing in on the whole the sort of normal normative sort of party identities. But the Trump Inc. I think figured in that uh, it's you're you're light handed on how much that family scooped up on the supply side opportunities to make a lot of cash. Yeah. And I think you're light-handed about that. But what what is your reaction to my suggesting there was a third party? It was called Trump Inc. It was the family uh, business. So I don't know how much it, it's a third party. I mean, I would, you know, I think polling consistently in terms shows... Of the, in terms of how the pandemic was handled. Right. No, I still think it was sort of like a subset of Republican Party because it, it was the neck that turned the head, right? I mean, so it... We can sort of identify Trump base as, base as a minority of the Republican Party, but it's still a very vocal, strong minority. Like a, a solid third, right, would see like this spiking support for Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, among the Republican Party. So you always have that like core 
third of a base, and that includes the the Trump family and the and the sort of the acolytes of the family, right? My pillow guy kind of thing. So you, but that's very much within the Republican Party because you have then even moderate Republicans who are you know aren't publicly checking, um, you know. When, you know, they were drowned it out, or or just not attempting to be vocal anymore. And At you all. see, you know, yep. even moderates like you know Mitt Romney, right, who you know, was not sort of coming out vocally in opposition, and and in any time he did, it was like you said, drowned out. So like I, I wouldn't really treat them as sort of this third. It was really much like the spearhead of of what the Republicans were doing. And you mentioning Vladimir Putin, and that's it. Sort of the uh, makes me then think of the oligarchs that are providing resources for the activity mm-hmm. in especially the, the we'll say, the mm-hmm. GOP. Yeah. So I would like for you to define what you mean by elites. I, I don't know that we all understand what that means. Is Are the elites the donors? Are they the formerly uh, uh, held uh, office, former office holders? Or is that just if you give us a real quick definition yeah. of what elite is? Yeah, so when we use the term elites, it means basically not ordinary citizens. So elites are going to be decision makers. They're going to be party influentials. They can be donors. It's a sort of, some people look at it as a kind of a class structure, right? You have sort of the people who are in power and make decisions, have money, have influence versus the you know ordinary citizens who may lack some or all of those features. But that's sort of how we think about elites. So we're talking about party heads, party donors, deciders. But some elites, we'll never know who they are. Of course. That's by either by design or... Or it's by design. Yeah. One of those two. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Sarah Walls Goodman talking about her book, Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID, co-written with Shana Kushner, Gadarian, and Thomas Pepinski. So then the media consumption is another element here. We're, don't worry, we're going to get to pre-existing conditions. Yeah, I, no that was an important part of that. <laughs> That the media consumption, I could not tell by my read of the book whether you were, what parts of media are you including? Because I, I never am going to keep my eye off of what micro-targeting and very specific kinds of social media kinds of dissemination of a message. But I think you're very general about it, but I want to know exactly what kind of media you were thinking about when you were preparing this. So we included all media, um, whether you consumed media by newspaper, television, cable news, social um, social media. You know, it's it's sort of a funny thing that professors discover every year as, you know, their students stay the same age, but they get older, is that like their students consume news in all sorts of different ways. And you're just like, what do you mean you read news on, you receive news from TikTok? How does that happen? Right. But, you know, every year you discover that that people consume news in different ways. So you re- need a really capacious approach to measuring how people consume news and where they receive information. Some people don't read the New York Times, and they just receive information from their family or their social network. So you, we take a kind of a really broad approach to how people take in information, hear about news. And my concern about that is that recognizing that is that I think the micro-targeting, because I see that mm-hmm. there are deeper pockets, there's more resources in the GOP, and that that is contributes to this asymmetry of the body politic. Yeah. Certain, that's Outcomes. certainly true. Yeah. I mean, there is a you know, we spend a lot of time in the book thinking about the role of Fox News and, and, and looking specifically at Fox News consumers. And there is a, a lot of research there that shows how sort of the targeted information that's presented there really sort of shapes opinions and behaviors in ways that are not matched or we can't find sort of the equivalent on sort of the liberal side of the ideological spectrum. And I, I'm just watching on uh, Twitter yesterday, it's, uh, people climbing all over CNN for its really weird coverage of what was considered not essential stuff. So yeah. I don't know if you were watching that, but that, so CNN is like trying to, what, I'm over here, not Fox viewers, we're over here. Take. So another, another thing mm-hmm. I was looking for was the zero sum. I don't remember it being named. And I think that's like, that's a big elephant in the political convention hallway. Yes. So we don't use the term zero sum. So I didn't catch it in there. Where, what yes. did you use? Well, I mean, American politics is zero sum. And we talk a lot about it in that it was an election year. When you're in an election year, everything is zero sum. The way that Trump viewed, prioritized economic performance and economic strength 
over other issues is entirely driven by his interest in winning an election, right? Not dealing with the hard problems of government at the time, or I guess the challenge of governance, I should say. So, you know, the reason we don't use the term zero sum, because we had a conversation about it. You did? I, I wrote, okay, fly on the wall. Well, that too, yeah. well no, because like I, I, I wrote another book that came out last year on called Citizenship in Hard Times, and I talk a lot about zero-sum versus positive-sum games because it's a comparative study of the United States, the UK, and Germany. So it's talking a lot about how when you have more number of parties or consensus-based institutions where people are, you know, there's more than one sort of chance to, to, to win sort of in it, m- multiple iterations, right? right, 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 right. But you have different kind of incentives, different behaviors, different attitudes towards members of opposing parties. So thinking about the U.S. politics just in general is about zero-sum politics, right? There are winners and losers at every iteration. But I, when I th- talk about zero-sum, I'm saying that that as a, a sort of a plank in a party platform or an assumption that zero sum is like the the mother's milk of resentment politics. In that other people if you give gained, a, if so you, we lost. Anybody, yeah. So right. that that's so it's not that the I'm not looking at the election who wins, who loses, but it's a, a zero sum is a wink to a big part of your party to mm-hmm. say you don't give up you don't give anything because you're gonna lose. And and I hear that. I heard that in presidential debates debates in twenty sixteen and I felt like Jumping up and down and go, wait, wait, you got to, you've got to call out. This is not that uh, candidates say that's a zero sum, but there's a way of saying by providing this in public policy, the other party benefits too. But it it, it doesn't show up in a debate. So that's what I'm talking about. Is yeah. So I mean, but you you see that in in, in behavior. I don't think that like. I think American voters are smart enough to observe that. You um, think? I wonder. Yeah. I mean, but also you know, when we think about kind of early response to the pandemic and okay. the way that like red states versus blue states were perceived. Right. So if you were a blue state, we didn't see a lot of help in the early days from the federal government. Right. I mean, that's very much about appeasing your base. If you're the governing party. Right. If you're the president, that those aren't supporters. So like they don't get early help. Right. And like that was a was it a New Yorker piece that 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 covered that story right that you know the zero sum dimensions were wholesale to Trump's sort of positioning himself as a strong leader right that I provide exactly. for my party I provide for the people that love and support me and and it sort of continues with these narratives about like protecting you know economic nationalism protecting the border things like that they're they're kind of all about protecting things for us right so. Please lay out then the broad strokes, the short order. There are pre-existing conditions that sort of make the American body politic exceptional compared to other countries going into it. And so Mm -hmm. one one was that it kept coming up is the provision of health care and that that I could see how that would have that really tripped up things. But let's talk. Tell us what those pre-existing conditions are so listeners can sort of follow what you're unpacking. Yeah. So, engaging. you know, one of the arguments that runs throughout the book is that the pandemic was always going to be bad in the United States. Um, but when this... did you first know it was going to be bad? I, I, I've checked in with other people in social science and public. When did you know it was going to be really bad? I, I mean, like early January, per... late January, early I, February. I was in early February. OK. Right. When I started to see how Europe was, because I'm a Europeanist by training, um, so I'm always watching the news and looking at how the U.S. was responding versus how uh, the EU was responding, the conversations that were happening at the EU level, right, which is, you know, a political organization that sort of provides a coordinating function for the European Union member states, right, which is sort of analogous to how we might think about the federal government in many ways during an emergency crisis. So, you know, in February, the EU was having these conversations about borders, what we can and cannot allow to travel over borders in terms of health care. Like there, those conversations were happening. And I think they weren't happening in the U.S. for two reasons. One was that I think just Americans assume a lot of capacity. We assumed a lot of capacity for our federal government that just was not there. The, and this is sort of the tail end of what happened when you know uh, President Trump spent years gutting federal bureaucracies. Uh, and so there was a, a gap in sort of common American knowledge about capacity. Uh, and then the second is just this sort of 
the healthcare system in general. It's no secret to any American that we have a poor healthcare system tied to employment of all things. So like even after Obamacare, right, that you're talking about basic care and we don't even we didn't even know what the coronavirus was. So like to me, and this is just sort of I guess my innate intergenerational inheritance of anxiety that like I was pretty worried in February. But I don't think I don't think anyone is telling the truth if they could imagine the scale. I don't think anyone is. Um it was you know I remember this interview last year by with Dr. Burks. Remember Deborah oh, yeah. Burks? Yeah, oh yeah. Fabulous scarves. De- Deborah and, yeah, Deborah, please respond. Yeah. Put, and her Please look, use that oar in that boat you're her rowing. Unmoored moral compass. Yeah, like okay, so you, sh- you know, she did this interview where she said I wish I could have said something, but I couldn't. It was important that I was in the room. And she said in that interview that the first 100,000 deaths were inevitable. That was just the nature of the scale of the population, density living, etc. Everything after that was like a policy choice. And that, like, is seared on my brain. I can't, like, I can't rethink I can't remember the pandemic without that filter, right? So I can't sort of remember it honestly. Because no, no, because there, yeah, that's yeah. understand. Yeah. So like now that I know that, like I can't even look at news reports from April 2020 and, and, and think about it any other way except like deliberate negligence, right? I mean, I can't, I can't look at it and think, well, they tried their best like because it's, because it was patently not that. So so, you know, healthcare, that's one pre-existing condition. We talk about Trump's unique leadership, you know, what what it's like to have someone with authoritarian aspirations in power during a crisis. Um, you know, one option is they become war presidents, wartime presidents. Another option is they become really derelict in their duty, and that's the kind of the option we see. We're even sort of politically uh, problematic, but like good faith public leaders try to warn him like about... Like, you need to act on this. You need to do something. There's, like, this story about how Health Secretary Azar at the time tried to warn him, like, 20 times to make a statement. I mean, like, so you have a... Even of, Navarro. Yeah. <laughs> Even uh, Navarro. Yes, I know. But that was one time. And then it was all over. But so, yeah. So, right. So, like... You know, they folded. It was a Every cho- one of them. It, but it was a choice. You see that that's a choice, right? That's a choice of a certain kind of political leader in an election year. So we talk about the healthcare system, we, and we talk about another pre-existing condition. And when we refer to these as pre-existing conditions, what we're saying is that like these were endemic problems in the United States that really make it unique to most of the countries in the world, and that it would affect the pandemic in such a way that the pandemic took on these uniquely American features. You know, field hospitals, <laughs> like you know, parking lot tents. Like there are ways in which our healthcare system was so. And we all saw the stories about, you know, nurses wearing garbage bags and things like that um, in the absence of PPE. So there are, there are ways in just like our underfunded healthcare system, our vast inequality where people couldn't have access to healthcare tests, essential workers who couldn't get time off work or, or couldn't you know, protect their family. I mean, there's just so many layers that made the U.S. in the absence of some of these sort of policy features that provide worker protections in other countries would make it uniquely challenging in the U.S., so I'm just thinking about the choices, and I guess I want to talk about the speak. All right, the choices where yeah. you're measuring mm-hmm. attitudes and and all. And I thought it was really interesting the recurrent, I think, factor in how people responded with the health missives and measures to be taken was the. It was one of your six things you're measuring was between the two, the parties and the others, I guess, is the searching for information. Mm-hmm. That, that for me was, that answered so many questions for the rest of the book. So the more you were reaching for information, the more you were sort of working on literacy for your individual self, for your protection, for maybe to understand how this works in the public health generally. So... Am I, I, that one was the one that really got me mm. the most focused in your book. But is, what, was that, 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 am I overstating that one for what you are investigating? No, so there's this interesting kind of, uh, set of studies in political psychology that talk about, you know, what people do in a crisis. 
Some people get angry. And when you get angry, you don't seek new information. When you get angry, you don't... Your bandwidth jams up. Yeah, you don't seek solutions. You act out. You... um, participate in sort of denialist behavior, right? That's what happens when you get angry. Another emotional response is anxiety. And if you experience anxiety or fear or uncertainty, then you're more likely to seek out information. So we're already, by asking people if they're seeking out information on COVID, um, sorry, at that time it was coronavirus still, that they were, were people that are seeking out information are, are also people that are experiencing anxiety, right? Because they want to know more. And so actually the implicit thing, which we don't talk about with regard to that measure is if you're not seeking out, if you are not seeking out, you're still receiving information, right? Oh, you're t- right. oh so, yeah. Right? So you're just, not impervious. Yeah. Correct, right? It's wow. Just, so like if you're seeking out, that's a, that's a positive as in a proactive behavior. But if you're not doing that, you're still receiving information all the time. You're just more subject to the cues of political elites or information elites, right? So you're just, or social networks. Or micro-targeting. Yeah, exactly, right? right? You're still receiving information all the time. And people use information as shortcuts, right? So you could, not, I mean, you and I are not going to sit down and read, um, immunology articles, well, maybe you are, maybe I did. I mean, that's a generalization. I don't know. Or, you know, you think about parenting, right? People aren't not going to read all the research on parenting journals, but like they're, they're going to sort of maybe read a book about good parenting. They might, which is not peer reviewed, but might draw on peer reviewed research. So you're already getting some filtered information, right? Or they might just hear from, you know, family, friends, whatever. You're still receiving information if you're not actively seeking it out. But we know that people who actively seek it out experience a certain kind of emotion to, to, to perform that seeking. Right. 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 But we're in, in, we're in an information environment. You're always receiving information and people use that information as heuristics, as shortcuts, as cues for their own behavior. Right. So it's like, oh, I have no idea what this coronavirus thing is. Who do I like? I'm not seeking out information, but like, you know, Trump seems fine. Like, I think he's a great guy. Like, he's still traveling. He's reassuring me. He's not wearing a mask. He's turning down my threatened reaction. But the reason I'm sort of having that aha Mm -hmm. moment is that I was thinking in terms of the benevolent inputs, not about the pernicious Mm -hmm. ones that are saying, go ahead, go for that bleach, go for the, you know, all those weird sorts of treatments. Or you think about ivermectin. Those are, you know, people that did their own research. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that ruined the expression. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even say it anymore. But people still use it in an earnest way. But, yeah. I mean, and I do do my own research, well, so I mean, it's very hard as an academic. I know researcher. it's just it spoiled that, and yeah. it's not over because of the no. the lace. But we'll get into a local mm-hmm. government piece uh, coming up here. Yeah. Which, by the way, they are all being sworn in. They were sworn in, and now they're going to have some uh, so, um, some public forms of, that'll interest people. And I'll mention it at the very tail end if we have time. So, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Sarah Wallace Goodman, and her book out we're talking about is Pandemic Politics: The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. So, that was really short shrift, and I know you have much more to say about those, but I want to move through because of the the developments that are I'm anticipating listeners are making co- correlations here. So, when you, if you are able to, you know, take your your mind or attention off of your directed projects both i'm sure you watched a little bit of the january 6th investigation the committee so there were there had to have been and you talk about there's a covid and then there's election denialism going on so did you see the january 6th investigation and what we learned from that because a lot of this came out after your pen was up and yeah. you finished your exam. You know, yeah. you finished writing your book. You're, you finished writing December 21st. The epilogue covers February 2022. It's so unenviable that you have to stop that, even though you're getting so much more information. But could you talk to the the parallel of the January 6th investigation of election undermining? We learned who all was doing that. And it had a lot to do with what was going on in managing the pandemic. So what parallels came out to you you can that's your new your epilogue part two epilogue well i would say that i think the thing we learn is how strong 
of a deferential kind of pyramid was in place, right? The real, you know, the the, the phrase the or fi- obsequious, the, yeah, right. The fi- the fish rots from the head. Is that it? Like, I mean, so that it's just a very strong parallel, and this is not surprising if you know if you study authoritarian governments, authoritarian regimes, authoritarian parties, authoritarian leadership, right? Which as a comparativist, which means I study other systems, right, um, is something that sort of theoretically. I was well prepared for and political scientists seem very well prepared for in thinking about how the parallels and in, in those kind of decision making structures mirror of what we observed that emerged during the January 6th um, uh, commission. So the first is sort of the structure, the deferential structure. Right? The second, you know, seems which is related. It, it's it's like authority without qualification. I, I continue to be amazed at how people were given What's, I mean, so like the British phrase would be remit, right? It's like your authority, your power, your portfolio, whatever it would be, right? That, that people were continued to give roles and assignments for things like, you know, electoral integrity, who have no training or experience in election integrity, right? People like within the Trump administration who were then deployed to, right, making sure that Georgia finds 8,000 more votes or making sure, I mean, I mean, this is a total mismatch between sort of competence and training and authority is sort of well I, th- I think one of the things and this goes back to the capacity issue with the pandemic is yes. I think people assume that bureaucrats not elected officials but like appointees have competence in the area they are appointed to I think this is a minimum assumption people have right that your health secretary has experience in health that your defense secretary has experience and I think that's like a basic assumption and we really observe that like that did not happen either with regard to sort of ensuring the integrity of the elections and I use air quotes for the listener because you know it was really about like undermining the electoral integrity well I just want to mention that an example of that though and you were very um the light touch about this but the center for disease control director then Robert Redfield and you I'm quoting you you called him a controversial virologist but I think you were holding your punches on that I mean so speaking of competency yes yes I mean much maligned and within the field Right. You could you know, see, and you are very just controversial. That's like <laughs> much maligned is a much more. But so you had your. Have you, you ever been attacked on Twitter? <laughs> it's not pleasant. We well, no, I, and I don't say anything. I just leave it there. And yeah, yeah. Know, but, but yeah, how to handle it. So, well, I, I know you you deal with the federal mm-hmm. and yeah. the, some and state leadership in these responses, the partisan responses. And I I don't know if, um, I mean, there's also, it was playing out on local politics, but yeah. uh, there's only so much, I guess, you can handle in this book. We were talking about that in preparation on the way into Studio A here. And so there was, that mean, because they have the purse, the power of the purse to, to push out things, Correct. to model. And we had, it was very partisan how the entire Orange County Board of Supervisors had managed this, how they telegraphed. There was, Correct. and and you do bring up Dr. Nicole Quick. Mm-hmm. You did, but I I would take exception to how uh, you said that she was harassed. But in real time, I remember exactly the moment in the meeting where, when she was doxed by the people that denying that pandemic was a phenomenon, that they that she was thrown under the bus by the board of supervisors. Mm. That's, that was powerful. That was an erosion. Now that's somebody who did have capacity on the local level, but the political, the partisan response was, well, let's let her dangle out there. And then she resigned very quickly. And I still want to get her on this show. I want to, I want to get, I keep thinking, Oh, I've got somebody who's going to vouch for me, but um, I, she has a whole story to tell about that. There were some professionals who were putting some very, hard positions by political leaders. I mean, we can compare what happened to her to Amy Acton in Ohio uh, in a similar position, and the governor stood behind her um, and, uh, you know, tried to really, um, you know, DeWine as a sort of leading Republican... Yeah, uh, you know, leading Republican figure really tried to commit political resources to following the science in a way that departed a little bit from sort of the federal narrative on that. But I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic, and I'm loath to identify silver linings in the pandemic. However, uh, we, are, we are very because of how lethal. Yeah. 
Not yeah. to dinner. Yes. Yeah, but go exactly. Ahead. However, I think people have become, have woken up to the importance and the variation that exists at the local level of government. So I think that every single person who tried to find a vaccine, every single person who had kids in schools became hyper aware of the power at the local government, of the local government. You know, that my kids were able to go to school in person and someone two miles down the road did not, or that Orange County was allowed to go in person and L.A. counties and San Diego were not. Uh, You know, I have colleagues at both UCs who were you know, with their kids at home all year, I think Americans became very aware of local politics and in, in what is a very important way. I think that is an important, valuable pivot to the future of our democracy. So I think people are more interested and more closely following and therefore holding accountable local political leaders. And you so think? I, I think so. I think that people are paying attention to local politics in a way that did not happen three years almost four years ago now, right? What year is Three. it? Three. Th- we're finishing up the yes. third year of, <laughs> of this. I mean, I was thinking in December, uh, just you know, which was now a month ago. Right? I, it's, time is really difficult for me now. Uh, you know, it's, it's COVID-19, yes. and I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be 2023? What? That's, yeah, it was, it's really unbelievable the way that time works now. But um, I think that people have new attention to local politics now. I think it's probably... there's still some barriers because we haven't seen a parallel or similar enthusiasm for local press, right? Which I think uh, would really sort of enliven local democracy. But um, I, yeah, I think that people are paying attention to what happens with the, you know, board of supervisors or, you know, what just, you know, the, the political uh, dismissal um, up in orange. Right. So, yeah, I think that people are following this in, in a new way. And, and again, actually, to bring it back to Twitter, I think that's going to be another problem is that people's uh, the availability of local news will decline even further if people stop using Twitter. Yeah, that's a tough calculation. We were going to say that for another day yeah. for, for that. <laughs> yeah. but so the, even my silver linings have some dark clouds. So but the, the group that were denying every aspect of managing COVID locally, mm-hmm. they were ready. They yeah. All the usual suspects were rounded up when... The county had to declare emergency to convert beds in regular hospitals to meet pediatric needs, and they all they all had the same script. Yeah, they all did it. You're yeah. managing my, you're controlling my body, and so they were. They're they're uh, so that's steady stream of that. So I'm just curious, really fast. Did the census taking that 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 was another sort of. Um, the way it, w- it was handled in a very different way in the last administration. But I, so it was taking information. It was requiring trust. It was requiring an engagement of people to fin- to sign on, to, to complete a task. And it's so important that everybody's nose is counted. Constituents, not just, I mean, it's everybody. So was that in the, it's a, a bit off topic, but I don't know if census administration was having any kind of impacts on the pandemic management. Um, I think it was probably more the reverse, right? So we don't talk about the census in the book, but like the pandemic management and which like we discussed mirrored sort of Trump management of anything, right? really affected how the census was taken, who was counted, what questions were asked. Remember, there's this debate about asking about citizenship and, and, you know, or who could even take or, it? Exactly right. It's it's count. It, it says count every person, but some people interpreted persons as citizens, and so then it was, yeah. So I mean, that's the census, like the pandemic, like the election, like everything else. If we think on sort of one side of the equation, was affected by the Trump leadership style and decision making structure, the choices, yeah, that rather them. So how about long COVID messaging? I don't think I saw long COVID in the book. No. And it's it's uh, it's why prevention is so important because of the unknown of of long COVID. So yeah. w- talk about what that brings up to you. Uh, I mean, it brings up my own fears of long, of long COVID. Uh, so I've had COVID twice. Um, oh, my goodness. I had COVID 34 days apart from each other. So I had two different strains. Um, 2022 was a hard year for me. Um, and the second time I had it was, it took a while to recover. Um, I did 
fully recover in the end. But, you know, I know people suffering from long COVID. I think the study shows that is it one in five, two in five, maybe. Um, I'm forgetting the number at the minute, but that uh, people suffer from long COVID and we still, you know, they're, they're still piecing together, you know, the, you know, different reasons why like there's just a study that it reduces your t-cell count like i mean right right so you know there's all sorts of of, because also covid manifests differently in different people with different pre-existing conditions and different you know experiences and so we don't get to you know because we stopped the book when we did which i should say i think there's certainly a value to following people over the course of the pandemic the in total but like but for us, it was really important that that we bookend it based on when we thought we had sufficient evidence for our argument. And our argument was that political choices made the pandemic a political pandemic. And the political choices and attitudes that emerged early on endured over time. And that's what we find when we survey Americans. We survey the same Americans. So we're going back and it's called a panel. So we go back and ask the same people the same questions over time. Sometimes we include different questions. Sometimes we'll swap some out. But there was a standard battery that we would constantly be asking people. Um, we asked them six in the end, six times over the course of a year, do you wear a mask? These were following uh, those following kinds the, of surges. Correct. Yeah. Asking the same American. It was like March 2020. We did April 2020. We did June 2020. We did August 2020. We did the next spring. November, December, and then the next spring after the election. So we wanted to have one post-election measure as a like a test. Like, well, do these partisan differences endure? And they, they not just endured, but they got the gaps got wider. Right. And so that was a really important part of our story. The pandemic looks different now in the sense that, you know, when a Democratic president comes out and says the pandemic is over, folks, go back to living your life. Like that's a strong signal to everyone that, you know, masks are optional. We live in a world where the pandemic is endemic now. And so the partisan Partisan behaviors look a little different now. I think I just saw something on death tolls that there's no distinction anymore between, you know, it used to be for the past year that it was Republicans in Trump supporting districts voting more, or I should say dying more than Democrats, right? That was sort of a gap that emerged from August 2021 that endured. Um, And that is no longer the case. There's no longer a partisan difference in death rates. That's what endemic looks like. Yes, that is. It affects everybody. Correct. Similarly. It's so pervasive. Um, But, you know, attitudes about how the pandemic was managed, like so sort of rear view assessment, reflections on behavior, those are still partisan, right? And the way we think about how the U.S. weathered the pandemic is still a partisan story. And I think the real big takeaway, actually, is that it doesn't these things don't need to be political. I mean, that's sort of, again, related to the pre-existing conditions is like the fact that we're such a politically polarized, that's one of the other condition, pre-existing conditions with, in, you know, with sort of searingly divisive zero-sum politics is that we, we don't, you know, we didn't have to make the pandemic political, but it, it became political. And that was an enduring feature which made it uniquely American in that respect. Well, it's also, though, the it's a financial yeah. sort of a yield that those that are out in front messaging something fabulous in a, in a negative way, that it's just such, it's their profession. It's a career to be in opposition to public policy just to get the attention and you're gonna, there's, there's money. There's money to be made. Yeah. And we can see that in social media. And it, then it moves into mainstream media. Yeah. So it's sort of like the financial incentives are making that partisan divide. That's probably one reason why yeah. that partisan divide opened up. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I don't think that was necessarily putting up, but there's so many factors we can all do. So I want to sort of wrap up here, we can, with what, I mean, you, when you said choices, that means it could be different if we yeah. chose differently. But what else could be different? A l- Messaging? Yeah, yeah. I mean, messaging. (laughs) So, like, I mean, policy could have been different. Preparation could have been different. Messaging could have been different. Uh, Role modeling, right? Endorsements. You know, Trump could have gotten a vaccine on camera. He didn't. He said he got a vaccine, but he didn't do it on camera. And this is like a 
performance that you saw every political leader in the world, right, participate in, uh, you know, that you model for your... Remember Arnold Schwarzenegger released this video? He was like in a hot tub, I think, at the time, making the sort of pronouncements like, you do it in person. You sh-, like, you know, I thought he was in an office uh, I with definitely all remember- his little, his trophies and all that. Yes. I don't remember the hot tub. I remember that was a different video. Uh, the mahogany leather yes, appointments. That, that sounds more So we have a different. But, you know. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember what has been memory hold at this point. However, I do remember there was a video in which he was certainly slagging off Trump from a, that. I did not make up. That's not some sort of okay. weird no, no, fever I... dream. But um, like there, there's there could be so many more changes. Um, some of that I think you saw at the state level, right? Where examples like Dewine or you know Massachusetts governor right tried to do things that were different in terms of what the Republican national leadership was doing. Uh, so you could. We could list the differences from messaging and procurement to behavior and modeling. Um, you know, we didn't see that, though. I, I mean, okay. Last last yeah. question is, and you do mention climate change as a this a yeah. way in which a body politic responds. So, what this is? We have like less than a minute yeah. for this. What does your research suggest is the capacity, the political capacity, toward managing climate hazards? I think that any future crisis, and this is sort of how we conclude the book, is a function of what the political choices are that our leaders make. Uh, citizens play an important role in sort of taking their cues or pushing back. Being a bulwark against democratic erosion, for instance, can be very citizen-led, as we've seen. However, it's what elites choose to do and where they identify their political incentives are to act. So climate change, like any potential future crisis, is really a function of how political leaders view their incentives and how much they value their political fates in office. All right. Let that sink in, everybody. Well, Sarah, this has been so instructive, and you let me go into some areas that were a little bit off topic, but I just want to sort of, I know where my listeners' heads are going, and all these moving parts are, are involved. I want to thank you so much for taking the time here on Ask a Leader today. Thanks for having me. My guest was Sarah Wallace Goodman, UCI political science professor and author of the just-released Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID, written by Shana Kushner, Gadarian, and Thomas Papinski, published by Princeton University Press. I was chilling in the morning, so tired, so sleepy, I'm the one to wake up. Well, I just quickly want to announce, uh, I mentioned the Board of Supervisors earlier. They are, there's some folks that want to just check in at 1030 on the agenda. The Sheriff's Department is requesting an additional $13 million to expand Music Jail here in Irvine. The board meeting already started this morning at 930, but uh, if you want, you can either go virtually to the OCGov uh, board meeting uh, live broadcast tab, or you can go to 400 Civic Center first. That's my wrap. Next week, my guest will be Armenian-American documentary filmmaker Vic Durami about his just-released production, Motherland, a feature film about Azerbaijan's Turkey's attack on Artsakh. Then, UCI professor of education, Yang Soo Kim, will speak on the science of reading. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. (laughs) 